Hello, and welcome to episode 142 of Pop Culturally Deprived, where each week we watch a movie I've never seen before, which is most of them, and talk about the good, the bad, and the lifelong ambition. This week, we're going to be talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, on your That Was Not His Knee podcast. I'm Mandy Kay, and you can find me on Twitter at Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. I'm on Twitter as well, at Matthew Vose. This week, we are delighted to welcome Jarrah Hodge from Women at Warp, who blogs about feminism and women's issues in Star Trek at trekkiefeminist.com, speaks about Star Trek and feminist topics on many panels, and is a cosplayer extraordinaire. Jarrah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I, I don't know that I'm a cosplayer extraordinaire, but because uh, I can't sew anything, um, but I feel like I'm I'm good at the like you know thrift store creative costumes. <laughs> Dress up extraordinaire. Yes, exactly. <laughs> was it was it number one you did at the last one? Um, my best one this year, I think, was Iris Stephen Bear. Um, and I, I made oh, like yes. a a uh, uh, purple beard. Uh, sort of reusable prosthetic thing um it did not move with your face so it looked really weird when you were talking but you know uh it's really hard to get to make a beard that's reusable that it also moves with your face yeah i mean i've done the other way but (laughs) it didn't work when i dressed up as tilly last year yeah exactly you know problems (laughs) everyone has their own challenges yeah So, Star Trek VI, um, this was one I think you put your name on when we first mentioned it. Like, hey, do the women at Warp Crew like any of the films? What do they want to come and talk about? And you said this. Is this your actual favorite? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the more that I watch the movies, the harder it gets to pick a favorite because I can spot, you know, things Mm. I love and things that I don't love about all of them. I mean, it's very safe to say it's not Star Trek V. Or Nemesis. Um, But uh, with... um, Star Trek VI, I uh, really love it um, because it is one of the more political of the movies. A lot of the movies um, Mm -hmm. don't get this political. Um, And it's uh, got some neat uh, women characters in it. And uh, mostly because it has uh, Christopher Plummer as a badass Shakespearean Klingon with an eye patch that is bolted to his head. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Or as I like to refer to him in my notes, Klingon Captain Von Trapp. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're going to get Christopher Plummer on your film, just have him quoting Shakespeare for half the thing. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I mean, if I had to pick between Captain Von Trapp and General Chang, I would probably pick the one that didn't have eight kids. Yes, <laughs> I, you know, I have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> and and they don't sing songs about goat herders, so yeah, exactly. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. This this is kind of the film that made me become a Trekkie because whilst I'd seen the films and already enjoyed it when I was. 10, 11, 12 when this came out, my mum bought it for me on video. And that was my point of, hey, I own a Star Trek thing. I'm going to collect all the Star Trek things now. And and that's led <laughs> us to here. <laughs> wow. Okay. So nice. if your mom had not bought you this and she had like bought you, I don't know, a Police He-Man yeah. thing, yeah, it would be completely different. <laughs> okay. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Matthew's mom. 
Thanks, Mum. <laughs> um, okay, we now come to Star Trek Six. Mandy, can you tell us what this one's about? So in this one, Kirk and McCoy are imprisoned for assassinating the Klingon Chancellor as peace talks begin between the Klingons and the Federation. You look like you don't like that. Have you have you stolen that from somewhere? I actually didn't. I wrote that okay. one and I didn't write it to throw shade. I knew you were going to call me on that since we've talked about that the last two episodes in a row. <laughs> but um, like the IMDb one was like three sentences long and I was like, it really doesn't need to be that long. No. You know, it's... it's Certainly just, without it giving is. too much away because mm-hmm. it... Like this film goes places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so a bit of background. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, is a 1991 science fiction film continuing the Star Trek franchise, directed by Nicholas Mayer, who had written and directed The Wrath of Khan. This film adds Kim Cattrall and Christopher Plummer to the cast, and David Warner returns, playing a different role than his appearance in the last film. <laughs> the film's budget was lower than expected after the disappointing performance of Star Trek V. With a $27 million budget, it made $96.9 million at the box office, and is the third in the series behind the motion picture and the voyage home, both critically and commercially. <laughs> so, is it available for streaming on an Amazon and Netflix? Where can you find it over in the US, guys? Oh, well, I'm in Canada, actually, um, and uh, I have it, um, I believe, on Crave right now. Um, sometimes it's on Netflix. It kind of comes and goes, and okay. um, presumably when we get CBS, we well, I don't know, um, but uh, I also just have the DVDs, so I have the Blu-rays, I mean, so I... Uh, tend to i keep my hard copies for these things Mm. as like insurance so that i don't have to be that dependent on the streaming services yeah it is crave where uh discovery comes yes okay too many apps uh mandy did you find it anywhere it is on hulu but i um actually i just had to look that up really quick because i didn't look because joseph owns (laughs) the whole collection so i didn't have to stream it but it is available on hulu to watch for folks who have that one um, in the UK, still, as with the rest of them, it's available on Sky Cinema. You can rent it on Amazon places. And yet, me too, I have the, the two box sets of all the films. So. Of course you do. Just in case, because, you know, you might have that urge, and then they're not available, and you don't want to spend money again. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you get the bonus features, and, you know, after you've watched mm. the movie 12 times, like, that's when you have to be like, okay, I can learn something new here. Yeah, director's commentaries with subtitles. I'm learning this is quite a nice way to go, so you can follow, like, both stories. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I said that it adds Kim Cattrall and Christopher Plummer, Mandy. I mean, they, they're both very famous for particular things. What do you know them for? <laughs> the things that they are most famous for, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kim Cattrall is Samantha Jones on Sex and the City, which honestly really is the only thing like I know her from. Like That's okay. who she is to me. And then when I see her in other places, it's because I recognize her from being on Sex and the City. Right. Um, and Christopher Plummer was Captain Montrap in The Sound of Music. And I've seen him in other things as well, but yeah, no, he's Captain Von Trapp. We we were talking about this as we watched, and I think Star Trek might be the midpoint between the extremes of Sex and City and Sound of Music. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, it, it's, to- it's very unusual to have the two of them in this thing, but actually, yeah, they're kind of meeting in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. Have Have you seen Police Academy? No, I actually think it's on our list. Okay. Or we've talked about it if we haven't actually put it on the list. Because we were talking about doing a Kim Cattrall month at some point. I think when this was on the list still. So Wait, she's in Police Academy? She's in Police Academy. I did not know a that. A few other things from that era. Yeah, Porky's and 
random stuff. So she's okay. also least well known for having gone to the same high school as me. Ah, very exciting for you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that exciting for her, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I'm sure she was out of high school. Yes, before yes. you were there. So much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was on Sex in the City when I was in high school. Yeah, right. Yeah, and presumably as a high school, they have to be kind of. A little bit careful about claiming that. Given yeah, the there was no framed portrait of her beside, like, the queen <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> but we can dream. Well, maybe now. Now they've moved on from the character. Because mm-hmm. did you know that character likes sex? Did you ever know that? That was, you know. They could Ooh, have just they... had a portrait of her as Valeris. Yes, there's the thing. Mm. <laughs> I have thoughts about Valeris. Yes. Yeah, we will cover that. Okay, Mandy, did you enjoy Star Trek VI? Oh, thank goodness, yes. I was so scared <laughs> after five. Oh my god. I, yeah. This, this, yes. This was a much better experience than watching the last one. Okay. What about it? Well, I mean, it wasn't the last one. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Not <laughs> I mean, that that's the main by. thing. It wasn't the last one. But this one actually, you know, I mean, it had a good story. Um, It had in general, really good performances from everybody. The There were a few twists that I didn't actually see coming, which was nice. I liked it. Good. I mean, it's I do- Kirk and Bones. I wish there was more Spock, but, you know. Okay. See, I think we get more Spock in this than the last one. I, okay, I've kind of blocked out five, though, so... <laughs> Like, I honestly don't even remember what Five was about at this particular moment. I just remember I hated it, so. <laughs> uh, Jerry, you said that this was political, and I think, I think that's absolutely bang on. And, and it works for the, the cast and crew at the, at, you know, at the age they were when they made this, at the time it was coming out. Whilst it's of its time, it is a really well-done political thriller. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's the fall of the Berlin Wall in Star Trek. It's like mm. the uh, the Soviet Union, I'm sorry, the Klingons is, uh, are uh, <laughs> not able to sustain themselves as an empire. Um, and, you know, let's make peace. But there's some people that are really invested in uh, racial hatred and mm. suspicion and uh, military industrial complex. And, uh it uh, is not easy for everyone, and I like how it, it challenges both sides. It doesn't just say that, like, this is limited to the Klingons being xenophobic. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's it's almost strange for Star Trek to quite lean into that with our core crew. You know, the things like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and some mm-hmm. of the comments they each make about the way they eat and so on. Mm-hmm. But then you see it with the junior crew as well. It's like, oh, okay, this is everyone. Oh, yeah. this is uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. That dinner party scene is so awkward. It is up there in probably the top two most awkward dinner party scenes in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> probably the most, I will say. Uh, second, possibly being in Face of the Enemy with Romulans. Um, but um, yeah, it's so good. It's just really, I mean, highlights this, I, I guess like highlights the stakes of this issue mm. and uh, the dynamics and the personalities and lays the groundwork for you know why people could think that possibly kirk and bones did do this Mm. yeah because they don't even hint at what's happening oh no they obviously lay some hints about what's happening but it is just very much we have no clue what's going on here 
it could have been anyone and we don't know until we figure it out right at the end. Mm -hmm. It's great. I I know you have a couple of things that I think I've heard you on your show talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely um, some of the downsides. One that Mm. is very frustrating is uh, the Uhura can't speak Klingon scene. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, purely for the joke. I feel like it is. Um, I don't think it really adds much to the story other than, you know, you want to make it hard for them to, like, you want to set up obstacles for them so they have them need to pass this Klingon security check mm. and Uhura is, like, reading out of a Klingon dictionary and uh, and kind of messing it up. And it's just, like, you know that she's better than this and that would be ridiculous. Yeah. And every, like, the other iterations of... um uhura in the rest of tos but also even in the jj verse uhura is more competent than that so um that was kind of disappointing like maybe they could have had someone who knows nothing about languages doing that and like uhura is trying to like coach them because they wouldn't believe a woman's voice or something (laughs) um i don't know i think there was other ways to achieve the comedy without kind of undermining uhura's abilities And, and i think if that was just the occasion of it you'd almost say like okay they've gone to the joke and maybe they shouldn't have done but they've got Chekhov not knowing about firing a phaser setting off an alarm mm-hmm. which i'm sure he's supposed to be part of security or something mm-hmm. um, yeah. and we also in star trek never have an alarm going off when someone fires a phaser so i'm not sure about that one and then they've got the whole mccoy beams over with his you know med kit going to try and help but then he doesn't actually know klingon anatomy so Mm. What is he going to do? I, I feel like he would have known, you know, it's, it's not like they shouldn't study Klingons and understand them if they're at war with them and conflict and so on. Yeah. So just all of them, they kind of forget like, oh, these guys are supposed to be good at what they do. Mm-hmm. But isn't it funny? Mm. Yeah. Well, it doesn't, I mean, the humor maybe isn't as funny as Star Trek Four, but uh, yeah. there are some, there's some good moments. But there's there's another moment that I think I, I think is definitely problematic in the film, and I kind of want to address yep. these so so we get them done. Let's oh, do the conversation because sure. it's such a big part of the, All right. the plot. Let's talk the forced mind meld of Valeris by mm. Spock, um, and uh, this is like really troubling on a couple of levels. And this is the main caveat I have with this movie. And uh, the horror things kind of like shrug that w- could have been done better. But this is, I mean, it's basically legitimating assault. Um, you know, she's, um, it's a very like invasive thing mm-hmm. um, in front of everybody. She actually says no and is like backing away. And it's justified as like, they need to know where, um, or like who all is in on this conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's not really any even like questioning of the ethics or uh, possibly like remorse from Spock. Um, it's just like kind of everyone's just like, yeah, you totally had to do that. And it's really troubling to me that you would have this um, like, especially like an older male mentor figure um you know doing this to a younger woman in front of everybody is it's mm. gross i i'm interested mandy by the comparison how it come came across to someone watching it for the first time i definitely felt uncomfortable mm. and definitely was feeling like i was absolutely watching an assault and it 
it was something that surprised me because that's not what I would expect Spock to do, particularly to someone who he had already expressed such admiration and care for. Um, so yeah, it was, it was definitely troubling and problematic. I think that the writers tried to save it by having Spock show emotion at the end when he realized he like pushed too far for no good reason because she didn't have the information and he had that catch in his throat, which is really good of, you know, a bit of good acting on Leonard Nimoy's part, but it didn't save the scene, right? I think they wanted it to. They wanted it to be, they're acknowledging we recognize this was painful and we recognize this was probably not the best thing to do, but the best thing to do would have been not to do it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It just, I think it's not good for... You know, it's disappointing from Spock as a character that we know and love and have watched Mm. on this journey. And I think he has one of the best journeys through from TOS through the movies of anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah, just kind of disappointing from a Star Trek perspective, too, where we're supposed to be better than this. Yes. Yeah, I feel I feel like the film wants you to feel uncomfortable so it's kind of good that that came across because you get the reaction shots of other people going like oh this isn't good and you see Mm. that she's being hurt by it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but there's no consequences which is probably the if this was a political thriller and you had a torture scene some sort of you know gritty someone has to die to do a thing and everyone's sad about it type of moment there would then be a consequence later some retribution some but it cost them to do that so it's not worth doing or something Mm mm-hmm but we get we get nothing. It's it, and it's let down because he then makes a joke about I've been dead before. Oh, yeah. good joke. But you don't come out of that scene making a joke. So yeah, yeah. Mm. I I get the impression you would rather they just found a different way to do it. So it, you know, not have it in at all. Yeah, I I mean, I just skip that scene when I watch it now. Just okay. <laughs> go like, okay, let's just pretend that doesn't happen. Yeah, it feels like such an odd scene to have given Spock because. I feel, and keep in mind, I'm a first time watcher for all of the original series, right? But I feel like Spock is kind of the the moral center, particularly mm-hmm. between the three, between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and to have him be the one who volunteers to do this. Like nobody asked him to do it. He was just like, "Oh, well, this is what I'm going to do to get the information." That feels out of character for Spock, and and so I feel like they just. It was a misstep all the way around. Hmm. Yeah, it almost feels like maybe he takes it personally because she's his mentee and, like, Mm -hmm. he trusted her. And, I mean, oh, gosh, the whole thing about this was supposed to be Savic originally, if if you can imagine this, like, being Savic. I think, I mean, it would have been even more appalling. Um, Yeah. And I I mean, they maybe would not have produced it this way. Uh, But, uh it's almost like he takes it personally because it was like this younger woman that he trusted and then she betrayed mm. him and it's mm. yeah and and if that is it then they can say that mm-hmm. make that part of your story and part of what he learns from it you know yeah. and they'll need to go and pay penance yeah. through something yeah mm. so it's a shame yeah. and it's a shame because they have a mechanism for getting people to reveal stuff logic like, mm-hmm. logic her to it they yeah. also have that computer lie detector that we learn about in the original series where they can just <laughs> yeah. say things and the computer goes verified or uh-uh. accurate yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know it, it reminds me the way they use logic in this 
of the thing they did in Voyager with Tuvok um, and the whole, you know, mm. logic is the start of wisdom, but it can also be used to explain anything. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. not explored here. And perhaps it's because they've explored it in Voyager. So, although this is before, so maybe not. It is, mm. although it's confusing because Voyager flashes back to this movie. Yeah, that's what's, yeah. <laughs> to another part that I really love that I forgot to write in the outline, which is Captain Sulu and the Excelsior. I just love yeah. everything about that. It, absolutely everything is wonderful. The fact Fire apart then. Yeah, sipping yeah. some tea, having yeah. mapped all these gaseous anomalies, but he's like, I'm captain, and I'm mapping gaseous anomalies. This is what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Happy, yeah. peaceful life, and then the Klingons explode. Yeah. <laughs> but when we, yeah, when we see him in action at the end, and he's just shouting, and he's like, right, let's get into this battle. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, he gets the cool, cool send-off at the end from Scotty, so that's really nice. Yeah. Have you guys ever listened to the there's a Star Trek fan production called Starship Excelsior? No. Um it's No. It's absolutely not canon, but it's it's been going on for like god 9 years now and I just got caught up with it and it's wonderful mm. and I it's one of those things I think I picked it up somewhere after we did like The Wrath of Khan and after we did the third one and so I had never really picked up on the fact that there was a starship called Excelsior because it had really only been mentioned. The Enterprise is the one that's always the focus on. And so it was really exciting for me to see Sulu being the captain of the Excelsior just because Mm. I have been so invested in this other like (laughs) fan drama that's all about the Excelsior. And it, I mean, it takes place way in the future. And so it's like a recommissioned version of the ship, but they um, did a 50th anniversary episode and they actually had Uhura and Savik and Chekhov like the actual actors on it. Um, And so in my mind, it's totally canon because they had the real actors doing it. And so it was just (laughs) exciting for me to be like, oh my God, this is Sulu and Excelsior and this is great. So I liked it. That's all. Brilliant. Yeah. If you haven't listened, you absolutely should because it's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. And and you should now definitely go back to the Voyager episode flashback. Okay. a, A pretty good episode, but it is set during some of this movie showing the Excelsior side. Okay. It was it was their thirty fifth anniversary episode, I think. Okay. Thirtieth. Fortieth. Thirtieth. Yeah, around there. It's so old now. Mm -hmm. It could have been any of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So that actually, I have a question about Hmm. when this was set. I know this movie was made in nineteen ninety one, and I know that TNG had already been on for a couple years at that point. Was this set before the events in TNG, or were these happening parallel because they were filmed together? Before. Okay. So this is now 60, 70 years before. Okay. But they but they were using redressed versions of the sets. Like, the Battle Bridge is something, and the, the engineering is basically just the engineering. They've just sh- changed that one window. Um, and the dining hall... The dining room that they use is the ready room, that sort of long curved table. Okay. Mm. It's fascinating to me, though, because I was looking at this movie and I was thinking, this feels very retro. So this felt like the original series version of the future, and TNG feels like a more futuristic version of the future. Like, they don't feel Mm -hmm. like they were filmed at the same time. It's very bizarre to me. And that's actually part of what lent some of my confusion about like time and when are these things set but i guess if it is set prior to tng it makes sense that they would try to make it have some of that more retro feel Mm. 
Yeah, because I think some of it is reusing previous sets from previous movies, but then they had this whole TNG setup, so they use them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of like in First Contact where they use some of the Voyager sets and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Okay. <laughs> I have seen First Contact at some point. Okay. Um, I don't remember it. And um, basically, if it has had TNG characters in it, I've seen it. But that doesn't mean I remember it. Okay. All right. So. I, talking on some of that filming, though, it, it really shows that particularly the cinematographer is someone new to Star Trek because he films it in such a different way that the cam camera's often handheld, so he's moving it around the bridge or whatever action is going on mm-hmm. and getting really close to it, which I think fits with giving it that kind of thriller, political thriller genre feel. Mm-hmm. But it's so different from other Star Treks. It just it feels like a different place in a different setting, mm-hmm. even compared to the last movie or something else. I love it. Mm-hmm. I think it really works on the Klingon ships and uh, mm. in Rurapenthe because um, it creates sort of this feeling of things being a little bit more claustrophobic as well. Yeah. Yeah, he's just always in people's faces. And then the, the whole search sequence where they're looking for the gravity boots and the uniforms, and he's filming through pipes and along corridors and make, making the most of the few sets they've got. But it really works. It's just it's so different. Mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed the first um, big action scene on Sulu's bridge when they get hit by the gaseous cloud. Um, because one of the things that I've always found absolutely hilarious is if you like kind of see the behind the scenes stuff of how they filmed those things, it's just like the people are being crazy and moving and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And there was a little bit of that here, yeah. but it was done so much better um, that you could tell that some of the technology has improved. But it was fun to mm-hmm. watch. Um, I mean, it it was definitely still there a little bit, but I think that's just a Star Trek tradition (laughs) at this this point, at least. I mean, it's still the, hey, why aren't they wearing (laughs) seatbelts? But but Sulu is really good at doing that crawl along the deck back to his Mm -hmm. chair. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I, I, I love the bit later with the Enterprise where they get hit and everything rocks and you see people falling out of bed. And it's now any time something like that happens in Voyager, you're thinking, some crew just like falling around in their dorms or something. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Brilliant. <laughs> you you made a great comment a minute ago, Mandy, about um, uh, the the moral center in Spock. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's really strange about this is the way McCoy is not used. So so it, it's almost there's a direct comparison to the Wrath of Khan. When in Khan, when they discover, when they find out what Genesis is, there is a debate between Spock and McCoy, and I think we called attention to it. Like one is the heart, one is the head, and then Kirk is making his mind up based on their arguments. Mm-hmm. That the kind of really classic Star Trek, the trio doing this thing. Whereas in this, they get Kirk making the arguments. When you think of like that, the scene, the conference scene at the beginning, and it's the two of them on either either ends of the table. And one is arguing for, and one is arguing against peace. My father requested that I open negotiations. I know your father's the Vulcan ambassador, for heaven's sake. Do you know how I feel about this? They're animals, Jim. There is an historic opportunity here. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. They are dying. Let them die. And it almost feels like they've moved Kirk into having the McCoy arguments, the head arguments. The, the passion mm-hmm. of it, the the heart argument. Sorry, 
and I can't decide whether that's just because you know Shatner wanted more lines and more to do, and it it comes across better when it comes from Kirk, or whether it's because he's now older, he's now more ruled by his prejudice and passions in that way. It's probably a little bit of both. Okay. I mean, I see it as a slight character development, whether it's good, bad, or bad development. Mm. I think it's a natural progression for this character to move into some of those positions, particularly since they have focused so heavily on his reaction to the death of his son. I've never trusted Klingons, and I never will. I can never forgive them for the death of my boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for that to still be permeating, what, two movies later? Three? Mm-hmm. I don't remember when that happened. They kind of all blur together a little bit. Three? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that that clearly is a moment that has defined him in his older years. And so I think mm-hmm. it makes sense to have him be more emotional. I mean, he's always been emotional, but this is yeah on a different level, I think. Yeah, and you you can't see, like, Kirk going to jail because he was trying to help McCoy. Like, you need that whole storyline yeah, to work. Right. It needs to be that Kirk is the one that's more invested in the conflict. Yeah, that's fair. It, it is the film ever actually setting up that we're supposed to think it could be them? Because we're following them as the no. strike happens. No. Yeah. No. Uh, I My only question was... Was this actually Starfleet that did it? Like, was this the Federation mm. that set it up? And they're just letting Kirk and McCoy take the fall for it. Um, that was really the question I was trying to get answered to the movie. Yeah. That's more, you know, the the modern Into Darkness take on it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if they knew that McCoy and Kirk were going to get arrested and things like that. They, they were trying to frame them, but they maybe just didn't think that far ahead. But I don't know. I mean, they had to think that Kirk at least would take the fall for it because they framed the Enterprise. Yeah. And Kirk's the captain mm. of the Enterprise. There's no way that Kirk wasn't going to go down for it if they were yeah. successful, right? So that's – the Federation does not treat Kirk the way Kirk deserves to be treated. That's true. Except for at the end of Star Trek Four. Well, yeah. De- yeah. Demoted and given a ship. Yeah. <laughs> well done. That's what he really wanted. <laughs> yeah. So, and I know that this wasn't officially Starfleet doing it. It was a couple, like, rogue admirals working with rogue Klingons to make this happen. Or was I supposed to think that this was actually the Federation doing it? But since the Federation president wasn't behind it, I, I was assuming this was, like, rogue, rogue demon hunters doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure we're meant to think it's at the top. And, it, and in some ways, this is why the whole mind melt scene is pretty irrelevant, because it almost doesn't matter who it was mm-hmm. or them finding out who it was. They they know it wasn't the commander in chief and they know it wasn't um, the Federation president. Because if it had been either of them who wanted war with the Klingons, they would have been at war with the Klingons. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's someone else plotting. Mm-hmm. So... I, I almost don't think it matters who it was. And in the end, it's like, okay, yes, it, that guy who, you know, Cisco's dad, who had the one line at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, like, I think you're right that it's not 
entirely about like power corrupting people it's about prejudice mm. corrupting people um and what mm. happens when you let your prejudices take over and it's mm -hmm. relevant mm. that it's something that we find at multiple levels um but you know if we if the president was implicated then you, we wouldn't have been able to have that same happy ending yeah yeah because it's a, 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 about them saving him unless it's a and the, yeah, and the, ultimately, there's still this moral center that we can re-obtain because enough people still believe in it. Mm. Although it's interesting that, particularly with the character of Val Valeris, she believed she was doing the right thing. She believed she was working to save the Federation. Mm -hmm. And... And so I find it interesting, and I know I'm the one who first used the word moral center, but it's interesting to think about it from that perspective because whose morality are we talking about? Because from her perspective, she was doing the right thing and everybody else was doing the wrong thing. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I think it's about us knowing that like Star Trek values or Star Trek morals include um, appreciation of diversity and that xenophobia and fear and like a security state are not necessarily compatible with that. Right. Um, so I would say like from a, like a Trekkian moral center, um, right. while like she as a character believes that what she's doing is right, which is super important. And I think that's a really big asset in the movie that these characters, like um, also uh, the you know, Brock Peters character, the other admirals and stuff, and even, and the Klingons, they're like, this is the way it's been. Not a lot of them are doing it because of like super crass reasons, um, but it's about uh, like fear and hatred. Yeah. 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 Mm, absolutely. It is is some of this helped by the fact we've had the next generation. So we know that in the future actually the enterprise the equivalent of this ship is a massive ship with families and big comfy sofas on the bridge and it's all nice happy exploration. Uh, and this film is kind of helping us bridge when they went from being a military thing to an exploration thing. Maybe. I don't know. I saw it like so much longer after I started watching TNG that I don't think I was really thinking about it in mm. that same frame as someone who may have seen it when it originally came out. Mm. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me either to think of it in that direction. Yeah, because they, they lean into the military, militaristic side of it. Mm -hmm. But I think just because that's what Nicholas Meyer likes <laughs> with the uniforms that he designed and stuff. Maybe. <laughs> Um, Valeris. Let's let's talk Valeris and Kim Cattrall. All uh, right. So, am I the only one who thinks yeah. that she does not make a good Vulcan? Possibly. I really like her. I, really I think she's. Like it. I think she's okay. I don't um, dislike her uh, in this role. Um, I know that she has been interviewed and talked about how, like, as uh, um, you know, as a kid. Uh, she was really into this and would like imagine she was Spock's sister and stuff. Oh. Um, okay. Uh, and I like that she came up with like that haircut headband situation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I I'm, I'm living for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I think she's maybe a little bit more, ex she's certainly more expressive than Robin mm -hmm. Curtis, but she's kind of closer to what Kirstie Alley was as Savick. Okay. Maybe. I felt like it was her expressiveness, really, because she she showed like sarcasm and she showed pride and she showed a lot of emotion on her face. And that's mm -hmm. not what you expect 
from a Vulcan. Like you would never get that from um, Sarek. Mm-hmm. Like, I expect it from Spock because Spock is half human, mm-hmm. and they didn't tell us if Valeris was half human or not. And so my expectation is she's not. And so it just felt like she was too expressive and emotional to be Vulcan. Well, there was some discussion that she was maybe going to be half Romulan, um, mm, which I've, okay. I'm actually glad they did not do because um, I think it would have met, been like, you know, this is the person we're supposed to sympathize with. And then realizing they betrayed uh, the ideals of the Federation is more powerful because it, it shows like it, it forces us to question, could you be this person? But mm. if you go, oh, well, they're half Romulan and the Romulans are super devious, then you can just kind of like chalk that all up to, well, we know the Romulans are baddies. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I she, don't know whether that was like part of how she was playing that. Hmm. Well, so let me be clear. I think Kim Cattrall is a wonderful actress, you know, and, and her performance during the mind meld scene was wonderful. It was really hard to watch because of her performance. Um, but I'm not sure she just makes the best Vulcan. Okay. That's all. Okay. I, I think she has the pomposity that I like in Vulcans. The sass. Mm. Yeah. The sass. The, the thing you get somewhat from Spock when they remember, but you get very much from people like Juvok. And it's mm-hmm. just the, okay, humans again. Oh, good. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm stronger and I'm smarter and I live longer, but fine, whatever you say. <laughs> okay. And I, I think that's what I look for in a Vulcan because it comes across as like, yep, she's a Vulcan-y Vulcan. <laughs> Vulcan-y Vulcan. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. Okay. Um, and we have lots of other people in this film. Lots and lots of other people who rock up. We have, a, and you see him ever so briefly, René Aubergenois. There is a, an extended edition with more of Odo, Odo's mm-hmm. actor in it. Um, we've mentioned Brock Peters. You got Michael Dorn rocking up as Worf's granddad, and you know you got Im- uh, Iman as Martia, yeah, um, who is a pretty interesting character in a Star Trek movie. You got like a, a shape shifting, potentially gender bending alien. It's like a lot of the shapeshifters we don't we see don't change gender, so mm. that mm-hmm. was cool. Um, although it definitely like led to what I think was supposed to be a funny moment, which was really just like. Kirk panicking out, panicking that he kissed someone that wasn't necessarily fully a woman. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, a little bit missed missed opportunity there on the end, but um, I like, I don't know, I, I think she's super cool and I think Iman does a really good job. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's an excellent addition and, and I like that she is kind of the, the, the stereotypical Star Trek thing to help them escape and get them to the thing, but oh no, she's working against them. Great. Mm-hmm. Good honor. See, you can tell I'm not quite as ingrained in the Star Trek world as you guys are because I didn't pick up on it until the very moment where they made the reveal. Like, I wondered, okay. like, I was like, why does she have furs? Like, who's helping her do this? Like, if they're just escaping, they wouldn't have had furs waiting for them. Like, I picked up on that, but it didn't occur to me, oh, she's going to betray them because she's helping the people who are trying to do whatever um mm. so yeah i i didn't quite clock that oh i didn't either when i first saw it no okay yeah. all right I, and i i think again it's that stereotypical like you're not meant to question it it's just star trek doing star trek mm-hmm. but twist yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and there were a couple of them in this movie like i didn't realize it was going to be valeris until mm-hmm. it was valeris 
And then um, with Mardia helping, both of them. And, you know, I pride myself on recognizing twists before they happen and, like, guessing where things are going to go. And I didn't in this one. And for me, that's always a good thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do always always say these things because I think in your notes you did pick up on the the clues that were being dropped. Mm-hmm. So at least it's not you know it's not a huge surprise when you get there, right? Yeah, but it is subtle enough to you know take you along the steps. Yes, yes, mm, it's a good twist. Um, we had an in the shadows silhouette cameo from Christian Slater. Sorry to wake you, sir. What is it? Starfleet urgently requests any data we have on the whereabouts of Enterprise. We did. Because Christian Slater. (laughs) Yep. Why was Christian Slater in a Star Trek movie? (laughs) This is all I want to know. Why not? Yeah, his mom is is the casting director. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. (laughs) He sounded, God, he sounded so much like JD and Heathers in this. Like, he had the same affectation and everything. Like, I knew who it was before we saw his face because of the cadence of his speech and his voice. And I was like, oh, my God. Why? Why? It was great. It's great. I'm trying to think if there are any others that we haven't touched on. Well, I'm forgetting the actress who played Azette Burr's name, so I apologize for that. Mm. But um, I thought that she was cool and also as a character, um, as it was neat to see a powerful uh, woman in Klingon, which we did not really get before mm. the Duras sisters. And even then, they're like, limited in their power because they're not men um so that was neat um to see uh this woman who was um very proud and powerful and not questioned in her ability to command but then ultimately capable of forgiveness and peacemaking and i liked her yeah i agree with all of those things and and i kind of like that they set up i mean they set up the question of whether she did do this to take over Mm-hmm. Um, quite nicely because there mm-hmm. is still a suspicion and then at the end it's okay and she comes in for the talking bit but th- there is a bit of opposition between her and the generals and particularly Chang mm-hmm. whether he was expecting to use her as a puppet or something but she holds her own and does yeah. say no we're doing what my father wanted mm-hmm. and and that is a great moment from um from Crystal, Crystal Plumber where he says your father was killed for what he wanted and there's there's enough threat in there, but he does it in English when they're all talking Klingon. So whether it's Christopher Plummer didn't want to learn the lines or whether it's supposed to be a thing of remember we are becoming something different through this. Yeah, I mean, it's not clear that she would have been able to maintain control if Chang had not been killed. Yeah, there, there would have been a full out coup or something, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I have a question. Hmm. Were we supposed to think that Chang was actually speaking English throughout the entire trial, or was he speaking Klingon and they just did it in English for the sake of ease? Because Spock and McCoy kept the translator to their ear the whole time. Uh, yeah, good question. I don't know. <laughs> I assume we're supposed to think they're thinking Klingon, but their okay. mouths just move in English words. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. they, they do the nice opening cut where he's speaking Klingon. Mm-hmm. It goes to the translator. Then we go back to him and he's speaking English. And it's just, it's quite nice as a way of establishing, look, this here's what's really going on. Mm-hmm. But for you, the viewing public who might not be able to follow and people don't like reading subtitles, here's what we're going to do for you. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like also, it. like you, you don't want to listen to twenty minutes of Christopher Plummer pretending to speak or speaking <laughs> Klingon, but you definitely want to hear him speaking English. Yeah. Especially when he's <laughs> quoting Shakespeare the whole time. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dramatically out of context, but it's all amazing. <laughs> oh, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So good. My my best garage sale find ever was uh, two years ago, I found the bird mm-hmm. of prey that plays sound effects from this movie. And you can just like press the button and it'll be like, cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah. I like it. <laughs> I have one more question before we jump into favorite moments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is it that William Shatner is the one who is Always, always, always called out for overacting to the point where you can William Shatner something. When in this particular movie, oh my God, DeForest Kelly just gives him an absolute run for his money. (laughs) He didn't have a lot to do, but when he did, my God, man, I tried to save him. I tried to save him. You know, it's just on and on. (laughs) Like, that's not the way he usually talks. No, but it is a nice dramatic moment to sell. Mm-hmm. This was not McCoy just letting him die. And I think it's because when you say, you know, William Shatner always gets called out, it's because William Shatner is always doing it. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> but in this movie, wow. I think, you know, I think Bones wins that award. Yeah. Bones Shatnered more than Shatner did. Uh, old Man Disco Bones. <laughs> yes. Old Man Disco Bones. <laughs> yep. I kind of miss Disco Bones, to tell you the truth. Mm. Oh, we all miss Disco Bones. Yeah. I miss the beard. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the V-neck with the, the chest, chest hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do love his commentary at the end when they're doing the torpedo thing. And you've got Christopher Plummer, just all those different quotes of, of Shakespeare coming at him. And he's just like, I am constant as the northern star. I'd give real money if he'd shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is a great line. Yeah. Especially, doesn't he do. Doesn't he actually say, like, a horse, my kingdom for a horse? <laughs> or am I just making that up because I remember that, like, so many of the quotes didn't actually make sense in the context, but were just him, like, yeah. <sighs> so awesome. Yeah, it is just anything he can think. Yeah. It's all the famous ones as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think with exactly. one from, like, um, Moby Dick thrown in there. Yeah. For good measure. It's like, Everything that you know that the average audience person will immediately know is a Shakespeare quote. So, like, the five yeah. most... It, he he wasn't like, um, Juliet, Juliet. <laughs> what light but, from your window? <laughs> <laughs> but that was in the cutscenes. So, d- so, let me pull on this thread for a minute. Does it make sense that a Klingon warrior, before the Federation has peace with the Klingons would be this entrenched in Shakespeare, a human writer from centuries and centuries and centuries ago? Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, is, uh, so, um, I think, uh, part, like, if you take this only with what we've seen so far up from the original series and kind of separate out TNG, then not so much because okay. the Klingons only started evolving into this era or like this depiction of Klingons earlier in those in the movie universe and mm-hmm. the 
older Klingons from the original series, I don't think it would have been believable at all. Um, but then when you see it like coming back from the next generation and Deep Space Nine, you're like, yeah, I can totally see this all fit together. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. So it retconned it later, maybe. <laughs> and that's why it didn't jump out at me as super unexpected or, uh, you know, really hard to believe. Okay. That makes sense. And you have David Warner's line in there where he's like, "You've never experienced Klingon until you've heard it in the original. Uh, you've never, never experienced Hamlet. Shakespeare, yeah, oh, Hamlet, yeah. until yeah. you've experienced it in the original Klingon. <laughs> like the original. Klingon. Wait, wait, what are you saying here? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. I I did buy my brother-in-law Hamlet in Klingon once, given my Klingon dictionary. I think it's hard for us to believe too, because I mean, so in our like educational world as uh like Europeans and North Americans we always learn the like same canon of writers mm-hmm. and we don't even learn like uh you know we're like oh well we know Don Quixote is a thing but it like no one's forced to really read it in mm-hmm. high school yeah. um like the like the people that are considered their greatest equivalents in other language original languages or other cultures mm-hmm. um and so it's really hard to believe that like hopefully in the future white people would do that um and then even more hopefully also aliens would be reading our great literature Mm -hmm. um yeah so i guess that's that's the challenge okay yeah yeah there was a proper human-centric thing to this with spock having uh you know the the artwork of adam and eve up on his wall yeah and, and that being the reference and the whole constant thing of everyone's human and you know inalienable human rights like mm-hmm. i don't think by that point we'd still be using alien in the same way mm-hmm. and I, I don't think we'd talk about human rights in the same way if you work with aliens all day long but i like that they had the aliens call them out on it right yeah, yeah. i mean the like, very term you... is racist exactly mm-hmm. like do you yeah, hear yourselves it. right now i think that was that was great mm-hmm. and, and the great thing with with as it is now we've seen Lorel ahead of yeah. that and being like, okay, yeah. this was a time when the Klingon Empire did have women running it and doing these things. It's just mm-hmm. they then rewrite it and the women have to have cleavage if they're on screen in future things. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. God, those big windows <laughs> kill me. Um, so, Jara, are there moments that you absolutely loved that we have not yet talked about? You know, I feel like we covered most of them. Uh, those are, you know, there's some definitely some highlights in there. Pretty much anything to do with Chang, uh, as at Burr, the dinner party. I'm I'm into it. Mm. Okay. The the dinner party is one of the great Star Trek scenes from mm-hmm. it, from every angle with the the Klingons quoting things and being a bit not defensive but argumentative with it, and then Kirk just the bit where he says Earth Hitler 1938, mm-hmm. and you just see the. Well, this has gone to rubbish, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I like that it's not so long after that that we then get the moment of, of the strike and um, Chang bringing the ship around to start firing at them. Because mm-hmm. he then, you can see he realises for all the snipping, for all the arguments we've done, this is now serious. We surrender. Mm-hmm. No one else is considering it. Everyone's gone back into old habits, but he's the one who goes, I can either continue what I've always done or surrender and try to keep this alive, keep this going. Yeah. And th- that's that's well played by uh, Shatner, I think. I think it comes across. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right, Mandy, did things stand out to you as we go in through? Is there anything that we've not mentioned? Yes, mine are actually, I think, mostly all quotes this time. Mm. Um, so in at the at the beginning when um Kirk is doing his personal log that that ends up being used against him he has this line where it, that shows that he recognizes how unreasonable he's being because he asks how on earth can history get past people like me mm-hmm. and i thought that was such a wonderfully self-aware line that acknowledges how illogical emotion can be mm-hmm. and oh, it man, was that's me every day and you know it was such a small line and it's not really ever addressed again but it just it struck me as like kind of profound honestly and not Mm -hmm. something you expect from kirk so um we talked about the catch in spock's throat after the mind meld Mm. when when he says she does not know i think that was just a wonderful bit of acting um this is the movie where we finally get the sherlock quote from spock an ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth um i didn't know that came from this i've heard it all the time okay. um and i knew that there was a sherlock slash spock connection um because there are memes and stuff about it but to actually get to hear it in context of where it was written was pretty great so that goes up against the the Klingon Shakespeare idea. Is is he saying, uh, um, oh, what was his name? Conan Doyle was the person, his ancestor, or is he saying Spock is actually an ancestor? He's saying Sherlock is actually an ancestor. Ooh, good question. I kind of <laughs> took it like you know Chekhov being like it was invented by an old lady in Leningrad. um like that he's talking about you know uh sherlock um but it's maybe tongue-in-cheek or he or you know it's been in his family mythos Mm. but that does seem way more unlike spock than chekhov Mm. yeah it's it it's easy to think that he's talking about sherlock because it's uh you know sherlock's the one who says that in the books but Mm. i find it hard to believe that Spock would not be more specific if that's what he was mm-hmm. referring to, because this is a world where Sherlock is fiction. Like Sherlock's not a real person in this world. We've seen that. Yeah. Well, at mm-hmm. least in later iterations of the show because mm-hmm. of the holodeck and things like that. And so I would expect him to be talking about actually um, Sir Arthur Conan's oil. But who knows? And yeah, because Data gets to give a version of this line when they do Sherlock stuff on next mm-hmm. year. And then, of course, you have the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, who gets called Spock at one point mm-hmm. for being unemotional. Yeah. It's all just a snake eating its own tail. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the last thing that I picked up on, um, and I put a wonderful gif in our outline because the Federation president has this line where he says, let us redefine progress to mean that just because we can do a thing, it does not necessarily follow that we must do that thing. And I Instantly got images of Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park in my head. Right. <laughs> so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And now I really think mm. Michael Crichton was inspired by Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all. Those were the things. I mean, and overall, I think this. I'm wondering if I think it's better than it was just because it's coming off of the tales of five. When five was so bad. And so my expectations for this were that 
anything has to be better than that. And so <laughs> when it was, I just loved it. Mm. I don't know. But I think I think overall it was just it was fun to watch. It was entertaining. I would watch it again. Despite the problematic moments. Good. So <laughs> I, I do love that whole sequence at the conference and you have mm. the Federation president and you have, as it were, giving these speeches that are okay and have snippets like that, but are the prop. You know, there's someone in the back like, do I need to be here? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of detail and this is going on a very long time. Right. I've got work to do, boss. <laughs> yeah. Could we have more chairs in here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and then at the very end of it, they beam down. But it's our core crew and cast who beam, beam down. They don't send down, you know, three security teams. Mm-hmm. Of course not. <laughs> it's Kirk who has a flying moment to save the president. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course. It makes perfect sense. I, I, I have one thing that we've not mentioned that I absolutely love, which, okay. which is, I, th- I think, the thing that really makes me enjoy this film the most. It, it's Spock working the problem. There is a mm-hmm. mystery at the core of this. And we get this in all good you know, thrillers of this type. There's something to be uncovered and we need to try and investigate it. But you can you can see him on screen sort of going through. Okay, so someone fired. And it might be us, but it might not be us. Well, let's go and count, count the torpedoes. Right, it definitely wasn't us. So it was someone else. Well, we would have seen them. Well, what if we couldn't see them? Well, maybe this. And you can see him logicking, logicking himself to it. And then knowing it's going to be hard for everyone else to follow. So he then talks them through it and sort of poses the questions and everyone follows him along. And at every stage, he's just making sure people stay with him as he's making these leaps of logic. And, you know, well, okay, they must have been from here. And this is why they must have been from here. And then they go and search every single cupboard until they find the uniforms. Mm-hmm. I I love the whole thing of, of Spock working it because it's proper good deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. Mostly. And then Kirk comes in, <laughs> and and the idea, rather than looking into it and trying to figure out who it was and trying to research, it's, hey, what if we pretend they're still alive and see what happens? Well, mm. what if what happens is they beam a bomb in there? <laughs> 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 but no, she comes herself, and they catch her doing it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks, Kirk. <laughs> well, I mean, Kirk I, has I, to be the hero. Come on. It's such a low-key way to be the hero. Let's make a horror. Put this announcement out. D- does she always put announcements out to every single person on on the ship twice about you know these people are in the sick bay and we need someone to come and record what they say? <laughs> mm. It's a great plan. It's a great plan only because it works. They could have been <laughs> sat there for hours going, "Well, do you want to play twenty questions?" No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a movie. Of course, that works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. But you know, honestly, I didn't question it in the moment. I was just present. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it takes you along with it very nicely. Yeah. But it it's a wild change from the let's check every single cupboard until we find the thing we're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Star Trek Six? I'm good. Well, we've touched on it a little bit. Does this film go too meta? The, the comments about Sherlock being a Vulcan ancestor. There's the bit with him in the trial saying, don't wait for the translation, which is being pulled from a real thing over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then jokes about Kirk kissing and, oh, what is it with you? Mm. Does it go too far with some of this? 
I liked no, it. I think it it like straddles the line, but also Star Trek has always had a bit of that. Mm. Um, you know, from the earliest episodes, I'm thinking of like, you know, all the Shakespeare references in the original series, yeah, like true. the conscience of the king traveling Shakespeare company that just comes around to your ship and happens to do a play that's also an <laughs> allegory of the total story <laughs> you're talking about. And the uh let's not forget cat's paw and like there's uh the like with the witches and that. I don't know. I think there's a lot of um references and ways to link it back to our present society Mm. in star trek and always has been and always will be and sometimes it's corny but i think here it mostly didn't like it didn't snap me out at the moment good yeah yeah i agree i liked it nice okay all right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us for this. This has been a lot of fun, and it's a really good film to cover, so I'm really pleased you were able to join us. Oh, thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, do you have any other recommendations? Are there other films you love, films that you've uncovered over the years that you think Mandy should check out? Um, okay, well, I don't know if you've already checked it out, but um, just because we were talking Shakespeare, um, my favorite movie of all time is mm. the Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> it's on the list. Oh we my did God. the David Tennant, Catherine Tate one last year, yeah. which was my first yeah. Much Ado. Um, and so now yeah. we do have plans to do the Kenneth Branagh one and the Joss Whedon one at some point. Yeah, I don't care about the first one or the third one of those, but yes. Okay. <laughs> well, we might have to, you know, take your name down for a guest mm. for the Kenfrena one. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, okay. having just done Keanu month, I think we're going to return to some of his work as well. So Yes, but we are going to take a little break before we do that. that that's oh. fair. I like Keanu movies. Um, Jarrah, where can people find you or your work? Where where are people able to look you up? You can find me on the podcast Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Our website is womenatwarp.com and we're on all the socials media at uh, at Women at Warp. And you can also find my stuff at trekkiefeminist.com. Amazing. I thoroughly recommend it. Or I, I think we reference you fairly often. We're like, oh yeah, someone said this really interesting point. I'm going to stay there. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Pop Culture Deprived is completely funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives access to exclusive exclusive content, bonus shows, and some exciting physical merch. If you want to find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And we will be back next week where we are going to talk about See You Yesterday with Connie Gibbs from Black Girls Create. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And our revels now are ended. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.